It's good to be back with you. I had a good time doing a wedding of a former student last weekend up in Indianapolis. It was a good time. Road trip with four kids under six for uh, 1,800 total miles while we're gone was a lot of fun too. If anybody wants to do that, uh, I recommend against it, but it was good. It was, it was a lot of fun. Love my kids. So, so we're continuing in our walk through the book of Ephesians, and we're calling this series Everyday Church. And for this week, we're going to be looking at a theology of work. The next two weeks after this, as we close out the series, we're going to be talking about spiritual warfare. So buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be a blast. It's going to be good times. The big idea of where we're going today is this, is that Jesus redeems our souls and our work. Jesus redeems our souls and our work. I can remember my first experience as an employee. Maybe I'll encourage you to do the same thing. Look back to your first job, or maybe if you're a teenager, you're like me. Like I, I said I wanted to drive, and my mom's like, okay, where are you going to work? That's kind of how it worked in my family. It's like, where are you going to work at? So after a short stint as a dishwasher, it was the only job that I ever got fired from after two weeks. So should be a little note to Megan that I'm not really great at washing dishes, but you know, it's probably not, probably not going to get away with that because we have a lot of dishes to wash. After that, I got this job at Arby's. I got hooked up at 15 and a half at this job at Arby's. And Arby's was a great job. I worked there for about two years in high school, and I learned a lot about life and work and even theology while I worked at Arby's. Some of the things that I learned about work were this. Just because your wage is five fifteen an hour doesn't mean that's going to be reflected on your paycheck. You see, I met Uncle Sam for the first time when I was working at Arby's. Some of you have met him as well. He is a nice man, but he likes to take your money. The second thing that I learned about working at Arby's was this, is that you should never eat on the job while working at a fine fast food establishment. Let me tell you how I learned this. Work was kind of slow this day at Arby's, and there may or may not have been a big Montana sitting under the food warmer that had been sitting there for a while, and I just kind of thought, you know, no one's going to eat that. I'm kind of hungry. I'm just going to take a bite of the big Montana. I'm going to put it back under the food warmer, and then I'm going to finish it up on my break. And so I did that. A big Montana is like eight ounces of roast beef. It's massive. So I put it back under there, and then all of a sudden, someone comes through the drive-thru, and I'm not working the drive-thru window, and they say, you know, I'd like one big Montana. So the person working is, they ring it up, and all of a sudden, it's like there's a big Montana under the food warmer. They pull up to the window, they pay. The employee that's working the drive-thru window puts the food into the bag, and sure enough, about 10 minutes later, someone rolls back through the drive-thru, and they're like, hey, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's this huge bite taken out of my big Montana. Is this some kind of practical joke, or what's going on here? It was this ridiculous thing. So I've learned a lot about work from working at Arby's. Now that you're thoroughly disgusted, where am I going with this? God's Word has a lot to teach us about work. What would it look like if the 90,000 hours approximately that you're going to spend working in your life had purpose? What if you didn't just work to pay the bills, but what if you saw it as a kingdom endeavor? What if you didn't wake up as a Monday morning atheist going to work, disjoining yourself from your life in Christ? What if you were thoroughly integrated and that you were a Christian, you could worship just as much in your work as you do on Sunday mornings here at Richards Middle School? What would that look like? Well, I think the book of Ephesians has a lot to teach us about this. Chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. 
Hear the word of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Let's pray together. Father, you have a lot to teach us this morning, and we want every bit of what your spirit has to press into us this morning. So we just pray that that you would clear our mind of distractions and you would illuminate your word to us this morning. You would make it come alive. You would grab our hearts with it and you would change us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So why am I talking about work from a passage on slavery? That's a good question, right? The first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the way that we think about slavery and the way that first century Roman Empire thought about slavery. I think we've got to kind of unpack that first and then we're going to get into talking about work. So what is slavery? Well, slavery is sinful. No matter what kind of slavery, no matter how oppressive or how non-oppressive it is, slavery is sinful because slavery says that one person is more valuable than another person. It says that, that the image of God in one person is more important than the image of God in another person. That's, that's sinful. But the scriptures say that there's only one thing that matters between you and I and the Lord in this life, and it's that it's whether we belong to Jesus or not. So kind of in a parallel passage about this, Paul writes this letter to this group of people that are the church in Galatia, and he says this in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, so there's this racial difference there. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You see, all these things were points of division in the culture. But what does he say? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So you'll notice that Paul doesn't begin by talking about being freed from slavery. You know, slavery and any type of injustice are not the biggest problems that we have as a culture. You see, what Paul wanted to do is to go after the heart of what's behind, what's underneath, what is the, what is the rotten distortion of sin that's underneath why people would have slaves. That's what he's going after. And as Americans, most of us, when we think about slavery, don't see slavery the same way that first century Rome did. Instead, we think of some of the most oppressive slavery in the history of the world, the African slave trade. And this is where God-image-bearing people were ripped away from their families, put on a boat, kidnapped, and sent to America to work for white people. It's pretty bad, right? not talking about the same thing, but I do want to press into a little bit of uh, talk about racial reconciliation because of where we live, because of the connotations and the implications of what slavery has marked us with as a society here in America. So let's look a little bit in the distinctions of the slavery. American slavery was this, it was very racial specific. So Africans were taken against their will out of their homeland and brought to America to work for white folks. We said that. Slavery was for a lifetime. Slaves were typically slaves for life, and they were ripped away from their families. It was forced. There was no choice in the matter. And I'd be remiss not to ask this question. 
Are we done? Are we finished with the implications of what this African slave trade brought against our country, what, what we got ourselves into as a country? Are we finished with the after effects of that? I, I would say no. Have we progressed? I would say yes. And one of the indicators of that is that we no longer suppress the issue. So we see things like what's happened at Charleston. We see churches beginning to unite, races beginning to be reconciled. People, the, the people that their families were brutally murdered forgave this man. I'm not going to go into all the details of that, but we're making progress as a culture, but we've got to continue to talk about it. There's racial tension all around us here in the South, and our, our tendency is to pick a side and to avoid the confrontation and to suppress it, but I don't think that's what the gospel calls us to. You know, as a six-month-old church here in Lawrenceville, if we desire to reach Lawrenceville, this is always going to be on the table for us. It's not like I preach a sermon about racism or racial reconciliation and what the scriptures say about it, and then we're kind of done with it. It doesn't work like that. Tim Keller says that if you're in a diverse context, this is something that's always going to be on the table, something we're always going to be talking about. And so I want to be faithful to continue to bring this up and spur us on in these areas. We're not called to avoid one another out of reverence for Christ, depending on your race. But it's Ephesians 5.21, which is kind of the thrust of this whole thing that we're going after here. It says we're called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And Galatians says, hey, there's no difference in your race and in anything else, your, your gender. But we're all one in Christ. So I grew up in this rural town that was 95% white in central Kentucky. And God has called me, and, and if you're a covenant partner here at New City Church, he's called us to this community called Lawrenceville that is, and I don't know, I don't know if you guys know the racial demographics of the, the breakdown here in Lawrenceville, but it's 35% white, 35% black, 17% Hispanic, and 13% Asian. It is one of the most racially diverse places in the country. What an incredible opportunity for the work of God to go forth. As someone that's called to reach the city of Lawrenceville, I and, and, and you, if you're a covenant partner here with us, we have a responsibility. Uh, because I didn't grow up in a context like this. I've, I've had to be a learner, a missionary to this culture. What does it look like to reach for the gospel to go forth in people's lives that look differently than I do, that have come out of different cultural backgrounds than I have? What does that look like? So I've had to submit myself to others and become a student. And for me, here's what this looks like. Uh, I have an African-American friend. His name is Daryl. He is a pastor down in Decatur. And Daryl and I have become good friends over the last four years. Daryl and I have watched two movies together, and we have a, a real tight relationship. Everything's always on the table. He, he comes from inner-city Detroit. I come from rural Kentucky, vastly different places. We watched two movies together. You know what those two movies are? Twelve Years a Slave, and we watched Django Unchained, two very racially charged movies. And the reason why we watched those two movies together is because I want to enter into Daryl's story. I want to hear what his take is on it. I want to love my brother better. I want to love other African Americans that are in my community better by entering into their narrative. And that takes some submission on our part. And the same is true with black folks and white folks or Asian or Hispanic. We've got to enter into the story together because we are one in Christ. At New City Church, we're not about a social gospel, meaning that if, if racism was just fixed or poverty, the issue of poverty was fixed, that, that we'd have a better world. We're interested in being made one with God through Jesus Christ. And an implication of what comes out of that is racial reconciliation. 
In somewhat of a stark contrast, I want to look at first century slavery as well. And at first glance, it kind of seems like Paul's dismissing this, but he's not. First century slavery in Rome was not racial specific. Every race had slaves. Every race was slaves. It was not lifelong. Most slaves were free within 10 years. And some slaves had their own slaves and property. One third, so at, at, at Rome's, at the Roman Empire's peak, one third or 30 million people were slaves. Most were poor. There was no welfare system. They had to become slaves in order to pay off debt. Slaves at the time were looked at, just like when we talked about the African slave trade, as, as possessions, not people. Very sinful. I do want you to remember one thing about kind of the culture of slavery, and it's this, is that before the industrial age, the home life and the work life were inextricably linked. So there was no, there was no disjoining like, hey, I'm going off to work. I'll see you later. Work was a part of home life. So that's something to consider as we look at Ephesians 6 here. So how did people enter into slavery? The number one cause was they were prisoners of war. Kind of the second thing was debt. Uh, there was no such thing as bankruptcy, so they had to become a slave to pay off a debt. Three, uh, other people voluntarily sold themselves into slavery because they would gain Roman citizenship, which is a very valuable thing. We see the Apostle Paul talking about that in the Scriptures too. Uh, and sometimes it was very oppressive and forceful and domineering. So how do we get to work with this? Well, the, the way that the Roman Empire viewed slavery was much like we see the, kind of the phrase indentured servitude. So it was like the family had a farm and they had, a, had an occupation that their family was about and they had people that helped them. And they kind of crossed the line by saying we're going to own people and, and have them as employees. <laughs> like that's crossing the line. But it was much more like our relationship with bosses and employees than it was of the African slave trade. So I, I want that to be clear as we talk about work from here. I'm not just going off on some tangent and avoiding what's going on here. This is about work. So the big idea of where we're going today is Jesus redeems our souls and our works. So the second thing we're going to talk about this is guidance for employees, guidance for bond servants, guidance for slaves. Ephesians 6, 5, 3, 8. Let me, let me read this again, and I want you to think about it in terms of work and not oppressive slavery that we talked about. Bond servants, obey your earthly master with fear and trembling. So employees, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with the good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. So we see three themes kind of in this portion of text that we're going to divide here. The, the first one is this, is it, as Christian employees, we are called to change our audience. Who do we actually work for? Scriptures say we work for Christ. Jesus is the boss. And we need to assert Jesus is the boss. The second thing is work wholeheartedly. And the third thing is, as Christians, we work with sincerity. Change your audience, the first thing. Paul says, render service with a good will as to the Lord. So the question we're asking is, who are we really working for? This phrase, bondservants, we've got to unpack this. The Greek word for bondservant is this word doulos, and it's a, it's, a, it's a very important word in the scriptures because the scriptures, they don't just call slaves by the word doulos, they call it people that are Christians by the word doulos, that we are slaves of Christ. You're thinking, oh man, I don't want to be a slave of Christ. Well, what happens when we come into a relationship with Jesus is we are inextricably knit to him, and that's how we're made one with God, through the work of Jesus. So where does this idea of bondservant doulos come from? 
Well, it comes from the Old Testament. One of the clearest places that we see this from is in the book of Exodus. If you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus 21. We're going to look at verses 2 through 6. When you buy a Hebrew slave, verse 2, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, well, I want to pause for a second. When I read this, I want you to not just think about the physical act of slavery. I want you to think about the spiritual implications of us being slaves of Jesus, being knit to Jesus, bond servants of Jesus. I want you to have both of those things in view as I read this. So let's start over again. Verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, not married, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's, and he shall go out alone. But, listen to this, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God. And he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, put an earring in his ear, and he shall be his slave forever. So what are we getting at here? In some situations, a servant would choose to stay with his master forever, even if he was free. They're given their freedom, and they say, I don't want my freedom. I, I feel like I'm more free by staying with my master. That's a, that's a mind-blowing thing to me. So the servant would, would find freedom in staying with his master. The servant would be making a permanent decision to stay with their master. And this decision, it wouldn't be a secret. It wouldn't be something that was done behind closed doors. It would be a, a public thing. They would take him, likely take him to the tabernacle. The priests would kind of be witnesses. They would confirm this decision. And it would be this, this beautiful kind of celebration that this servant wanted to stay with this master forever. And it's a reminder both of the servant that he has made a commitment to his master and to the master that he has made a commitment to provide for his servant, the servant would have his ear pierced. And the servant would be reminded that he is not his own. And as I, as I read this, I thought a lot through the spiritual lenses of what it looks like to come into a relationship with Jesus. And it sounds a lot like coming to him. Instead of running free, we submit. We say, I submit myself. You've heard of that phrase, the lordship of Christ in your life? It's kind of where this idea comes from. So there's this, there's this ceremony to signify what's going on in this relationship. So as Christians, we have a ceremony as well. It's called baptism. It, it, it marks entering into a permanent relationship with Jesus, us being knit to Jesus forever, never to be separated from him. And it's not a private matter. It's, the, it's a public deal. And the purpose of this text right here in Exodus 21 is to point us to Jesus. And the only, the only audience in your life and in my life that really matters is that we belong to Jesus. So no matter how bad your job is, no matter how much you hate your work, you belong to Jesus. And that's actually what matters. And I think the bone-chilling truth from Exodus 21 is that verse 5 that I kind of paused on when the servant said, I love my master. I will not go out free. Oh, for us to say that to Jesus as we come to him. I love my master. I will not go out free. I am knit to Jesus for life. I will serve him with my life. See, being a bondservant of Christ is much better than being a 
a slave of, a, of, a, of another man. Instead of having you be pierced to become his, he was pierced so that you could become his. Our life has been marked by the work of Christ, and we've been baptized as a declaration to the world that we belong to him. The freedom the world actually thinks of that it has, apart from Jesus, a lot of people celebrate this freedom that they have in life, and we see that being celebrated in our culture through a lot of different ways now, is actually no freedom at all. We must understand that if we're not bound to Jesus Christ, we're bound and captured by the enemy. There's no such thing as really being free. And where do I get that from? Well, I get that from the Bible, 2 Timothy 2.26, that they may escape from the snare of the devil, listen to this, after being captured by him to do his will. That's what it's like to not be knit to Jesus, is you're captured by the enemy. And the thing is, is that the greatest deception of all is that you don't even believe that you are. And before I came to Jesus, I was in the same place. I had no idea I was captured by the enemy, that I was doing his will. But when we come to Christ, we're given a new identity, a new life. We're knit to a new master, a far better master, Jesus Christ. And we have a way out, and it's through submitting our lives to the Lordship of Jesus. So this is what true freedom is. So when we have this type of freedom, we are free to worship God with all of our lives. When we're knit to Jesus, we are losses of Jesus. We are, we are bondservants of Christ. We're, we're free to enjoy Jesus in all of our life, even our work. Jesus is the real boss. And why is Jesus the real boss? Because he bought us with a price. and We don't belong to ourselves. Secondly, work wholeheartedly. So verse 6, Ephesians 6, 6 says this. Not like people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. So these servants are not only to do the minimum amount of work, so think about your job. I know a lot of times, as I worked at Arby's, man, I just wanted to do the minimum amount of work possible to still get paid and keep my job, right? He says, no, that's not the way the Christian works, because you see, he's not just trying to please his boss, he's trying to please Christ, because he can please Christ, because he's knit to him. Instead, Christians are to be completely engaged in their work, mind, body, so we are completely sold out to whatever plow that God puts in our hand because we don't belong to ourselves. There's a parallel passage, Colossians chapter 3, that talks a lot about the same thing. And I want to read it for you because the way that Paul phrases it here is really helpful for me, and I hope it's helpful for you too. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says this, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive, ESV says, uninherited as a reward. Uh, you are serving the Lord Christ. In the Greek language underneath this, the actual phrase is that you will receive the inheritance. So that's different, right? Because he's saying that we've already received the inheritance. If we've already received the inheritance, we've already received the reward, if we've already got the paycheck, so to speak, then what do we work for? We work for Jesus to please him, not just for, not just for money. Money, power, and fame no longer have dominion over our ability to enjoy work. But now work for us can be a primary way, as we spend 90,000 hours of our life working, it can be a primary way to establish God's kingdom on earth. I know sometimes it's hard to understand, you know, if you work in an auto parts store, okay, I'm selling auto parts to the glory of Jesus. Sometimes it's hard to understand, like, how our work connects to God's work. If you have difficulty in understanding that, I would challenge you to maybe even think about the people God has put you to work with. Okay, so how is the kingdom going forth through the, through the co-workers that God's put in my life? Because 
God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't, he doesn't do things the wrong way. It's not an accident that there's someone in your office that has questions about spiritual things or maybe someone in your office that really annoys you. Like God put them for your good and his glory uh, at your workplace. And now you're like, oh gosh, thanks Ryan. People often tell me, since I've been a pastor for the last eight years, people often tell me, they say, they say things like this, wow, it is so cool, Ryan. You get to do the Lord's work. And what I always want to reply and tell them is this, wow, it's so cool you get to do the Lord's work too. It doesn't matter what your occupation is. We're all doing the Lord's work. Our paychecks just come from different places, right? We're all doing the Lord's work. It's all Jesus's work. And my hope is that you would be free to see the 90,000 hours that you potentially will work at some kind of a job, lived on purpose, and that you would enjoy it. Number three, Christians are to work with sincerity. So Ephesians 6, 5 says this, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. So he means respect and reverence. With a sincere heart, just as you were serving Christ. So translation, our work and the way that we serve our vocational superiors, those are in authority over us vocationally, we're to work for them as we're working for Jesus. Ryan, you shouldn't have said that. That's a tough truth, isn't it? See, God needs to grow our vision of what work is. God needs to grow our vision of what he's called us to do as Christians. As Christians, God uses us by his spirit. You know what he does? He cultivates renewal in the world to subdue the earth and to be about the flourishing of all people. So whatever our job is, it, you're, you're going to be able to trace this all the way down and find that it in some way is cultivating renewal in the world. Whether you're a teacher and you're helping instill education into people that will benefit them from a lifetime to be able to advance God's kingdom or whatever you're doing, there is, there is some type of flourishing that's attached to the work that you're doing. Our work is his work. And the temptation for us is to be on both ends of this pendulum that swings back and forth. On one side, we idolize our work. So we make it a God. On the other side, we demonize our work. And we say, man, I hate that thing. I hate that place. Why do I have to do this? God, why have you called me to this? And the dangers of either of these is this, is when we're successful, we feel a sense of false security in our work. Our work provides something for us that only God can really provide, a sense of security, a sense of rest. And the other end of it, when work isn't going well, we panic and we think that God has left us. Tim Keller says this, if our identity is found in our work rather than Christ, success will go to our heads and failure will go to our hearts. So as it goes to our, our, our heads, success goes to our heads, we'll try to steal God's thunder. So, man, I made this big sale. God did this, I did this big thing. Look at me. Or if, it goes, if failure goes to our hearts, we'll be devastated by disappointment that, quite frankly, God has orchestrated. If God is sovereign over everything, your vocational disappointments are, God is ultimately responsible for those. Because it's for your good. God is, God is up to something that we can't see. And I want you to remember this. That as Christians, the paycheck is already in the mail. It's already yours. God isn't waiting to see how you perform to send your compensation. Jesus did the impossible work of winning your soul back to, to God. He closed the deal you can never close. He climbed the mountain you can never climb. And he fronted the payment you can never pay. And the reward is ours presently and also futuristically. This is good news. 
It's kind of the insight that the Apostle Paul has for us as we work. Now, for masters, he also has some wisdom. Ephesians 6, 9, masters, do the same. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. So what is he saying here? He's saying, masters, bosses, see yourselves as slaves to Jesus, even the playing field. You see, the first thing that the word kind of tells us here is, if you're a boss, see yourself as an employee. And, and why should you do that? Because as Christians, we're all bound to Christ. There's no partiality. It doesn't matter how educationally astute or vocationally astute you are, how much you've got your stuff together. None of that matters to Jesus. He didn't look at any of that stuff and say, oh, yeah, I'm going I'm to choose to save you because you've got your stuff together. He said none of that. So why do we hold that over other people? It's a great question. What is he saying to the masters here? He's saying don't rely on fear for motivation of work. You know, a lot of times as a boss, you can be tempted to, to kind of hold out fear, to, to really have a, a sense of just everybody's walking on pins and needles because they don't know what's going to come next. And, and we motivate people through fear to get work done. He's saying, don't do that. Shoot your employees straight. Have expectations and accountability and go forward from there. He says there's no partiality in him. So as I said a second ago, class distinctions make absolutely no difference with Jesus. White collar, blue collar, clergy collar, no collar, doesn't matter to Jesus. None of it matters. The things that we think make us distinct all belong to God, not to us. We didn't earn them. God gave them to us. And so we ought to live in such a way as we manage and lead other people vocationally that we are servants of Christ first and foremost and not bosses and leaders superiors to other people. And as we do this, I think we will see flourishing in God's kingdom, regardless if we see flourishing in our business. I want to land the plane with this. Just get real practical. Just what is a theology of work? What do we take away from today? What does this mean for me when I go into the office tomorrow morning, Ryan, or whatever I do? The first thing we need to understand is this, is that work, work was happening before the fall of man ever occurred. Work is not a result of the fall, even though some of us tend to think that, yeah, you know, if, if, if Adam and Eve wouldn't have eaten that fruit, I wouldn't be work, doing this work that I've been doing. <laughs> but work is pre-fall. So we're called, we were called to work before sin ever entered into the world. And, and we will be working when sin is eradicated from the world. The kingdom of God starts in a garden, the Garden of Eden, and it ends in a city, the city of Zion, the New Jerusalem. Do you think that city's not going to have work for us to do in it? It's going to have a ton of work for us to do in it. In heaven, it's going to be possible for us to, to worship God perfectly and to work at the same time. And that's a beautiful thing. We don't idolize our work. We don't demonize our work. But we worship God. And one of the ways we worship God is through the way that we work. A beautiful, beautiful picture. Because of that, as one of my first pastors liked to say, and it stuck with me, Christians should be the hardest working people on earth because we know our work actually means something. Because we know our work actually means something. In a talk that Tim Keller did, he's one of the best people to listen to on this whole idea of a theology of work. He gave a talk in 2013, and I just kind of extracted three principles I want to share with you to kind of take as we leave today. And here are the three things. 
One is this, faith gives you an inner ballast without which work could destroy you. So what does that mean? As Christians, we can say no when we need to say no. Because we don't live in fear anymore. We can trust that the Holy Spirit has security over us. And if we get fired because we say no to something we're convicted by to say no to, like I'm saying no because I need to eat dinner with my family tonight, then the Lord will provide. Work doesn't have to be your mistress because it's not all up to you to provide for yourself. If God gave you that job, he will take care of you. I can remember a time when we lived in Indiana, when we first moved there. It snows a lot in Indiana. I don't know if you guys know that. I don't, you guys know what snow is? I know we had that like inch or whatever and it shut down the city. I had this idea. I'm an entrepreneur. That's where we're planning a church. I had this idea. Okay, I had this big Dodge pickup truck. I said, hey, we could just, we could just put a, a snow plow on the front of this thing. Man, I can make like 50, 60 bucks an hour plowing snow. No big deal. I can do this. And so I got this snow plow, and I'm working like all hours of the night. I'm going, I'm going to be a youth pastor by day, snow plow man by night. I'm working all the time for money that I don't need. I learned a very important principle during that season of my life. Just because you can make more money doesn't mean you should. There is a cost to everything. Number two, faith gives you a concept of dignity and worth of all work, that's really important, of all work, even simple work, without which work could bore you. So what do I mean by that? There's a temptation for us to show kind of partiality to people that are vocationally astute. They have a better, more prestigious job. So we, we, we kind of call them superiors. And, and what happens when we do that is we, we show partiality to people that have jobs that are more simplistic. So when you have this, when you have this faith, we see that all work matters because God created us to work. And it doesn't matter what the job is. It matters that we're working and we're doing what God has called us to do. And that, that work is a gift from God. And I, I think even our society gets this much better than the church does. Because how much of the time do we talk about the unemployment rate? We talk about that a lot as a society. It's really important. Work is important. So we're free from judgment and one-upmanship that typically occurs in conversations, because we're free to celebrate all types of work. And lastly, faith gives you a moral compass without which work could corrupt you. So without having the mind and motives of Christ in our work, we're all tempted to take shortcuts for selfish ambition. But in Christ, we can afford to do the next right thing because we don't work for that boss that's over us. We ultimately work for Jesus. So we can tell the truth in that close with this question. What if you could worship God the same way tomorrow morning that you do this morning through the way that you work? The big idea today is this. Jesus redeems our souls and he redeems our work. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that you give us work to do. That even when we're tempted to kind of idolize or demonize our work, that you, there's grace for that. You rescue us from that. God, I pray that you'd help us grow vocationally. And not just climb the corporate ladder or whatever ladder we're trying to climb. But that you would help us grow in our worship of you through our work. We know that everything belongs to you and everything we have is a gift from you. So let us work in light of that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.